Our guest preacher is Melissa Florvixler. She is a writer and pastor with degrees from Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. Her ministry has been featured in The Atlantic and Sojourners. And she writes for Gies and Christian Century, Mennonite World Review, and The Mennonite, among others. She serves as pastor at Raleigh Mennonite Church and lives with her husband and three children in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we are very glad to have you with us. Thank you for, welcome, uh, for coming to service this evening. Let's welcome you. I bring you greetings from, uh, from Raleigh Mennonite Church, and uh, it's a blessing to be with you all tonight. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My freshman year of college, I drove an hour south to worship with Haitian refugees in a Boston outskirts called Mattapan. This little Episcopal parish was called Church of the Holy Spirit. And the friend who pointed me in their direction explained that this was a church planted by Quakers. He went on to tell me that the Holy Spirit for which the friends named this meeting took the form of discernment of God's transformative spirit. When I worshiped at Church of the Holy Spirit, I could imagine earlier generations of Quakers sitting in silent meeting waiting for the gathered body to become a vessel of the Holy Spirit. I heard the Spirit moving in Haitian Creole petitions said aloud during the prayers of the people, words whispered and shouted for loved ones in the eye of poverty and sickness. I saw the Spirit moving in the passing of the peace, a rowdy peace that week after week went on probably twice as long as the priest intended it to. And I could hear the hum of the Spirit and the songs of Haitian local worship intermixed with the high hymns of the Anglican Communion. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rushing violent wind. And it filled the house they were sitting in. Divided tongues as fire appeared among them and rested on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. There's a certain irony to the work of the Spirit. If you want to know the Spirit, you have to look at stuff, at life, at hard things, at, at matter. The Spirit rests on people and food on trees engulfed in flame that never burn out. It flows through the temple and it broods on the River Jordan. What the Spirit does is it rests. The Spirit befriends things. To think about the Spirit, writes Eugene Rogers, it will not do to think spiritually. To think about the Spirit, you have to think materially. When we want to know the Spirit's work, it does no good to turn our minds to being taken out of the world, to be removed from the feel of earth or the taste of food, the struggle to survive, heartbeat and breath, my hand and yours. For the spirit to rest is for all of that to become friends of God. But what does it mean? We hear that question here in the scripture. 
What happens to stuff when the Holy Spirit makes friends with it? It's the question we hear echoing through that room in Jerusalem. What is unfolding here? What could this mean? I'm here in part because I wrote a book. It's a book about the Old Testament. And what I hope we'll discover among the pages of scripture in the Bible is that it's always talking amongst itself. It's in a constant conversation of unveiling and veiling, renewing and renewing again. The Bible offers questions to itself and draws us back, looping us back in again and again and again. And so it would be personally out of character for me if I did not bring to us today the question of the interrelation of the Pentecost story and where we find it in the Torah. Why are all these Jews gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost, the diaspora brought here to Jerusalem? Because 50 days after Passover is Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. It's one of these three pilgrimage festivals that are required for all Jews to celebrate in Jerusalem. And it's in Exodus 33 that we learn that Shavuot is the celebration of the giving of the law of Moses and the first fruits of the harvest. And if we want to answer this question lingering in Acts, what is happening here? We have to return to this day, to this feast, to see what the Spirit was up to in ancient Israel. The ingathering of first fruits is a giant potluck. It happens once a year, and it's the celebration we notice that we get to notice who specifically the Bible invites to be there, that names them sons and daughters, men slaves and women slaves, Levites and strangers, the orphans and the widows. They are all together brought to this party. And every year the Spirit makes this possible. Pentecost is meant to call our attention back to Shavuot, back to the work of the Spirit befriending a meal. And the Spirit does. The Spirit makes friends of bread and the first sheaves of wheat, of grapes shared and meat divided. In the background of the story of Pentecost is the celebration of a shared meal where all social and economic divisions are overarched. And if we hear this story as we're meant to, as Jews, we hear it among the smell of roasting lamb and bread baking. We hear this story among figs and pomegranates handed out to everyone, amongst laughter across tables, a feast where even Gentiles, even Gentiles, are welcome once a year to draw near. At Shavuot, status and class are broken down for a short time, but then life resumes to normal. Slaves return to being slaves. Women return to being subjected to patriarchal forms of violence. Men return to being rulers. Widows continue to cling to charity, and sons are once again the ones endowed with inheritance. But if the coming of the Holy Spirit is intended to bring us back to the feast of the ingathering, we can understand the pouring out of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost as an endless feast of ingathering. The Spirit's work is to overcome our division in the material being of our lives, 
where around bread and at the table, in the giving and receiving of gifts, we actually become a new people. It should come as no surprise to us that the next thing that happens in Acts is that the community begins to organize its life around common goods. Do you remember what happens next in Acts 3? The first followers of Jesus say this, Awe came upon them because of the many wonders and signs being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as they had need. Day by day, they spent much time in the temple and they broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts. What the Spirit does is it sets about overcoming of leveling economic and social class. I actually don't think there's much new here. (laughs) Perhaps especially because in Mennonite churches, material sharing is more robust than maybe in other traditions. I don't know. But we have forms of sharing in our congregational life. In Raleigh, it's a listserv to give away eggs when an especially well-laying hen has uh, produced or to borrow a lawnmower. And I've seen incredible acts of economic leveling in other churches where people in church pay off one another's school and medical debt. But there's another conversation beginning to move into the mainstream of our political landscape, a conversation about economic leveling that has been going on for a long time. And this is the conversation about reparations for slavery. Like many people, the first time I seriously considered the argument for reparations was reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' article in The Atlantic called The Case for Reparations. Reparations is a form of economic reckoning for the generational dispossession of wealth of black people in the form of an intentional, systematic, affirmative action for white people. These programs spanned the life of the United States, going back to broken promises of reconstruction with with two acres and and a mule, It encompasses redlining and racialized restrictions on the GI Bill, extends to environmental racism, and the unchallenged persistence of the racial wage gap. And in each generation, this economic disenfranchisement is compounded. Each generation, the gap widens a little more. Reparations is a form of leveling. It's setting right, or as right as we can, the economic disparities intentionally created to form whiteness. This has generated fascinating conversations for our next presidential election about what this could possibly look like. But I think there's a question here for the church. Back to us who worship together, those of us who form our lives around this story of the Spirit resting on the church. If part of the Spirit's work is to create communities to hear one another, to overcome the divisions of our languages that allows us to redistribute our wealth, then part of the Spirit's work is to activate in our church the questions about how we came into possession of what we have. How is it that we come to the land our church sits on? Our home, our investments, our jobs, what is history wrought that some of us here in this some of us here in this place 
How does undoing the past among us in the church make a way for us to pattern our life after those who came before us, who had everything in common? On May 4, 1969, the organ at Riverside Church began to play as James Foreman made his way down the aisle. He was there to demand $500 million, and the organist was instructed to play loud enough that the congregation could not hear the request. Foreman was involved in SNCC and the Black Panther Party, but it was his work with the National Black Economic Development Conference that brought him to Riverside on that day. He came with the Black Manifesto. For centuries, we have been forced to live as colonized people in the United States, wrote the authors, victims of the most vicious racist system in the world. We are therefore demanding that white Christian churches and Jewish synagogues, which are part and parcel of the system of capitalism, begin to pay reparations to black people in this country. They wanted money to buy land to establish farms to create a publishing industry for national news, to combat the white establishment press, to form a black-run university in the South. Churches gave Foreman a fraction of the $500 million in the form of donations to nonprofits. But the Black Manifesto caused an uproar in white churches, including the Mennonite Church. A few months later, black Mennonite pastor John Powell on August 16, 1969, at the old Mennonite Church General Assembly in Turner, Oregon, issued a call. He wanted the church to establish a fund of half a million dollars for the purpose of developing and expanding the way of serving urban poor and other minorities in new and meaningful ways, and for anti-racism in white churches. The church managed to raise no more than $100,000. There are lots of reasons for this, but perhaps the most clear to me is that the movement of the spirit, she who goes ahead, is the one we are always catching up to. And often her vision is too radical and was too radical for the Mennonite church at that time. But I wonder what it means today for the spirit who broods over creation to stir us again towards a life where we have everything in common. When she is among us, we will understand our past. We'll break open the language of history that formed the fissures in our economic well-being. And if we will not prohibit her presence, we'll find the work of leveling our divides is waiting there for us to take up. Amen.